Well, it is a good morning, despite the rain, despite the, I think, almost five weeks of rain. It is still a good morning. We're here to celebrate our King. Um, if you don't know me, if you're new today, I am Josh. I'm the children and youth pastor here, and it is a pleasure uh, to be here with you all. And today we'll be on page 845 if you're using the Pew Bible. That's Mark chapter 9, verses 30 through 37. And in the Pew Bible, that's page 845. Before I get started, I would like to pray for us. Father, I thank you for uh, today. Thank you that we get to sing and praise you for that precious blood of the Lamb that's been shed for us, that we might be rescued from ourselves, that we might be reconciled to you. And so I thank you for that privilege of being your child, and I pray that today through uh, your word that you would even help us to grow in appreciation of what you've done for us through Christ, this servant king that we will look at today. And would you also help us to see how being his disciples, we are to be not just ones who hear the word, but we are to also be ones who do, that we are to image our life after this servant king. And so would you help us to be ones who hear the word, but then also live it, that it would stay with us more than just past noon today. And so would you use your word to shape us, would your Holy Spirit work among us today, making us more like Christ. And it's in his name I pray, amen. So before we dive into our passage, I just want to give you a little bit of context. Right before the, uh, what we're going to read in Mark 9, in verses 14 through 29, Jesus heals this boy that has an unclean spirit or a demon. And his father brings this boy to Jesus because his disciples haven't been able to cast this demon out yet already. And through this, Jesus tells the man, I can heal your son if you believe. And he cries out and says, I do believe. Help my unbelief. And so there's this tension that he wants to believe, he does believe, but then there are real struggles in this Believing in this faith that he's supposed to express to God and through to Jesus. And so I think with this right before our passage that we're about to look at, I think it's setting the stage to show us this one that we are supposed to believe in. And, and who is he? What is he like? And so I think you could even summarize that first part right before what we're going to read as believe in this type of Jesus. Believe in this type of of king. And as we come to the passage, I want us to get two things from it. And that's the first one is Jesus is a servant king. And then the second one is that Jesus is the king of servants. So would you read with me in Mark chapter 9 right now? Verse 30 says this They went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and when he is killed after three days, he will rise. 
But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. For on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve. And he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put it in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. And so in verses 30 through 32, we see that Jesus is this servant king. And it's not the first time that he predicts his death and his resurrection. He does the, the first time in Mark in chapter 8. And then here again in chapter 9, and he does it another time in chapter 10. And each time his disciples, it's really clear, they don't understand what he's talking about. The first time when he says, the Son of Man has come to give his life as a ransom and and he will be raised again. Peter immediately follows it up and rebukes Jesus. And then Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. You have no clue what you're talking about. And then the third time it happens, which is chapter 10, as soon as Jesus tells them that he's come to to die and to be raised again, James and John tell him, or ask of him, if they can sit next to him in glory. And so it's clear they don't understand, and it's clear in this passage they don't understand either, right? It says they don't understand and they didn't know what to ask him. And so at least at this point they've... It appears like they've learned something. After Jesus rebukes Peter the first time, at least he's silent this time. He doesn't say anything, revealing his ignorance. But we also see something new in this passage. The second time Jesus tells about his passion, he also says that he's going to be betrayed. So Jesus, if we're going to describe him in this passage, how he is this servant king, he is a betrayed king. He's a suffering king. But he's also a risen king. And so I think each one of these describes how he is this servant king. So Jesus is a betrayed servant. We see in verse 31, he says, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. And some of your translations may say that he was betrayed. The New King James says he's betrayed. Some of your translations may say that he's delivered up or he's delivered over. And the Greek here, I think the more, little, more literal translation is that he is delivered up. And, and this is highlighting that, that God is the one who's actually delivered Jesus over. And yes, Jesus is betrayed by Judas, but it's not by accident. It's not that Jesus was too weak or too feeble to stop the plans of, of people that are trying to betray him. But it's that it's God is the one who is who has set it forth in time that he will, Jesus will be betrayed. And we see something similar to this in Romans 8, 31 and 32. It says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? 
And then also from the words of Jesus himself in John chapter 10, he says this, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay my life down, that I might take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I received from my Father. And so Jesus is this betrayed servant, but it's not because he's weak. It's not because he can't stop what's happening. But it's God's plan for him to be delivered over, to be betrayed by the ones he pours his life into, most notably by Judas, but even denied by Peter. But then we also see in this passage, Jesus is this suffering servant. And each one of these is describing this servant king. So he's a betrayed servant He's a suffering servant. And Jesus says, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. So Jesus, this suffering servant, just as Craig read for us in Isaiah 53, this is the reason he came. Jesus came that he might pay the penalty of your sin, of my sin. Isaiah 53, I'm going to read it again. Verse 11 says, Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, that is Jesus, my servant, make many to be counted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. And so we can't just gloss over when Jesus says that he's betrayed, that he's the suffering servant. This is what he came to do. He came to give his life as a ransom for you and I. And it's not just by accident. He died on purpose. Because you and I have missed the mark of God's perfection. We've sinned. We've rebelled. And some of you might even be thinking right now, Okay, Josh, you have not told me anything I haven't heard already. I've grown up in the church. I know this. But you must remember this too. Because the call of being a disciple of Christ is not just to receive him once, but it's a call to follow. And so in this call, you must remember that your king, the servant king, he gave himself on a cross that you might be forgiven of your sins. He came as a servant. He didn't didn't come in pomp and circumstance and power and might. He came not counting equality with God as something to be grasped, but he laid his life down for us. And this is what he's showing us. This is the type of king he is. He's a servant king. And that is something that we should rejoice in, church, that you, one who has believed, have been bought with a price that is the precious blood of the Lamb. And some of you might even say, well, I'm not here because I've I've really come for any other reason than just someone's invited me. Well, I'm glad you're here. I'm glad someone invited you. But I also think it's not by accident that you just showed up today. You're here to hear about this servant king who gave his life, who was betrayed for you, that you might believe in him. And this is a king that says... You haven't done so many sins that I'm going to not love you. This is a king who says, even though you've betrayed me, 
I'm still going to serve you. I'm going to love you. I'm going to give my life for you. And so, friend, won't you receive him today? Won't you see your need for him today? Because Christ didn't die just to have some act 2,000 years ago that we look, up, look upon today and say that was, that was one of the greatest things that anybody could ever do is to give their life. It's not just to be nice. It's not just to be kind. But Christ has died that you might have life because you are dead in your trespasses. You are dead in your sin. You have no hope. There's nothing you can do in and of yourselves to rescue yourself from the peril that is to come if you're without Christ. And so I ask you, would you today even consider this betrayed servant, the suffering servant that gave his life for you. But we also see in verse 31 that Jesus is this risen servant. It says, and when he is killed, it's certain that he will be killed. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. And every time that Jesus speaks about his death, it doesn't end there. It's not bad news. It's good news because Christ has risen. Every time Christ speaks of his death, he also speaks of his resurrection. And so it's imperative that we don't just see Christ on the cross still, but we see that Christ has broken out of the tomb and he has been raised from the grave and he has ascended to the right hand of the Father, interceding, pleading for us. And hear the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. 14. He says, And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching, even today, the preaching of God's word is in vain and your faith is in vain. Your time here today is in vain if you only see Christ as the suffering servant that did not rise. But the good news is he's not dead. He has been raised. And because of that, we, through the Holy Spirit, have been saved from our sin. We've been saved from the death that is promised us that is being separated from God forever. And so faith in a suffering servant is pointless. It's a waste of time if he's not also this risen servant. If he's not the risen servant, all of the Bible is just moral teaching that has no power to deliver you from sin. And so the Bible that we read is not just this guidebook, the three steps to conquer sin. The Bible tells us that Christ, the Messiah, the one who was to come, gave his life, but he's also the risen one who has conquered sin, who has been raised from the grave. And so therefore, we have a great hope. This hope is that we will be with God if we are in Christ. And so what's all this pointing us to? Why is Jesus telling us he's going to die, he's going to be raised? Why not just show it to us when he does it? Why not just show his disciples? I think it's because he's trying to show them even now before his his death and resurrection that salvation never has been and never will be earned. It's a gift. Salvation is a gift for you and I. The work of salvation is achieved 
through Christ alone. And in many ways, when we sin and we think we can brush ourselves off and clean ourselves up, and, and maybe after a week or two has gone by and, and the guilt or the shame of sin has kind of subsided, then we can come back to, to God because He's a vengeful, wrathful God. And so I don't want to go to Him when I feel guilty. When we do that, we're actually... It's as if we were even the ones spitting in His face right before the crucifixion. Because we're saying, I don't need your work. I can clean myself up. I don't need your death. I don't need your resurrection. And so we can't let enough time go by. We can't do enough good works to to do our bidding before God as if we can actually clean ourselves up enough that He would receive us, that we would earn favor. Instead, it's, it's that we would come to a loving Father through Christ as we repent and as we fight to believe the power of the gospel. It's only the power of Christ that the work of Christ is applied to us, conforming us into the image of Christ. And so perhaps some of you have have been trying for your whole life. Maybe you're even 60, 70 years old and you've been raised in the church and you've been trying your whole life. And every time there's sin, you feel as if the judge's gavel is coming down on you and it's a heavy weight. Then I want to ask you to see you can't do anything to purchase yourself, to clean yourself up, but it's Christ who has died and has been raised from the grave for your sin. This is the gospel. And so I I want us all to see our hopelessness and to grow in a gratitude and a thankfulness for Christ and what He's done for us. And so we see that Jesus is this servant king. He's a betrayed servant. He's a suffering servant. He's a risen servant. But then also in verses 33 through 37, we see that Jesus is a king of servants. One one study Bible says this. He says, The self-giving manner in which Jesus fulfills his messianic role, which is the the foremost role in the kingdom, provides the standard for his disciples in whatever secondary roles they might serve in the kingdom of God. And so not only does Jesus' life and Him being the servant king purchase our redemption for those who believe, but it also provides for us an example for those who are His disciples. So the, the call to discipleship is also a call to be a servant. It's a call to follow our servant king. And we see here in these few verses that the disciples must have been as they're walking along with Jesus, behind Him maybe perhaps, or in front of Him, they're arguing, who's the greatest? They're comparing, right? Something that we quite often do, we compare ourselves with somebody else, whether it's a peer at work, or the other mom, she seems to have it all together. We compare ourselves. We may not be so bold as to to compare ourselves with one another in front of each other, 
and say, I'm a greater mom or I'm a greater co-worker or I'm a better boss. But we do this sometimes. We have this difficulty. And I think it's pride. I think it's pride creeping up in us. And pride isn't always displayed through what we may sometimes think of as, as the arrogant or the boastful. Maybe that's how it's most often noticed. But I think pride is more complex than that. I think pride can be displayed in the workforce with uh, maybe even we, we try to change that word, right? I'm driven. I want to, to pursue excellence in my work. And excellence is not bad. It's actually a good and God-honoring thing if it is God that we're trying to honor with our excellence. But oftentimes we disguise it with I'm driven, I have a passion for this. When in actuality is we really are seeking the praise of others through promotions or a good nice pat on the back. Proverbs sixteen eighteen says this Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. And this is this is like anti Jesus. Jesus, our servant king, on his way to Jerusalem takes time out to even teach his disciples. He doesn't scold them. He doesn't say, I've taught you already. Why haven't you learned today? He sits among them. He pulls them aside. He sits among them and actually tries to draw it out of them first. And they remain silent. And so then he says, true greatness is not what you have thought it is. The disciples are busy bickering about who's the greatest. When Jesus, with his teaching and with his life, is saying, the greatest is the exact opposite. It's he who humbles himself is who is exalted. Look at my life, Jesus says. Look at everything I'm doing. I'm healing the sick. I'm spending time with the marginalized. I'm healing the lame. I'm giving sight. These are the people I'm spending time with. And you're busy arguing about who's the greatest. Humble yourself. Make yourself the least of all, the servant of all. Let your Father be the one who exalts you. So Jesus is not saying here that you shouldn't be a leader, that you shouldn't be a boss. That would be to misunderstand his teaching. He's saying the type of person you should be, whether you're a manager at work or you're on the totem pole because you're low on the totem pole because you just, you just got hired. This is the type of person you should be. This is how you should love your family. This is how you should seek to be in the church. Be a servant of all. Count yourself the least of all. Notice me. Follow me. I am your good example. And I think we in the American church... We struggle with this. Our view of religion or Christianity is often thinking about ourselves. And just one example of this, I think, is when we think about life after death, when we think about being in heaven, quite often we think about what comes, what is to come for us. Well, I, I escape flaming fire and I get mansions in glory and I have 
My, my mansion's going to be on golden streets. And we miss the point is that salvation's not just so that you live in a nice place. Salvation is that you are reconciled with your God, your maker. Salvation is you getting God and God getting you. And so whatever else, side benefits come, great, good. I could forgo all those if you give me Jesus. And so this is what God is saving you to. And so often we think of what God is doing is keeping us from sin and heartache when he says, come to me, the greatest treasure you could ever have is in me. Come have me. And so salvation is primarily about being reconciled with this great God, which only comes to us through our servant king. And we often catch things more than we catch them when we're taught, right? The the saying goes, often things in life are better caught than taught. And Jesus is doing this daily with his life. He's showing them how should you live, but he's also teaching them. He wants them to, to heal the sick, to cast out demons, to give sight to the blind. And he shows them all the way up until his death. Even the night he's betrayed, what do we find Jesus doing? He's having dinner with his disciples. And right before dinner starts, what's he do? He takes off his cloak, his jacket. He picks up a towel and ties it around his waist. Not because he wants to look cool, but he takes the towel so that he can wash his disciples' feet. Even hours, perhaps moments before he's betrayed by Judas, he washes his feet. So it's not just be a servant of those who are nice to you. It's not just be a servant to those that it's easy that you get along with. Consider yourselves the least of all. Servant of all. Look to Jesus, our Savior, our suffering servant king. And the very fact that the disciples were concerned about who is the greatest underscores their failure to understand Jesus' statement about his suffering and his death. And so these disciples, they're to take, or even we as disciples, are to be learning from him through his teaching and through his life, taking this place of humility as we learn from him. And as I mentioned earlier, this call to discipleship, it's not just to to make a decision one day and now I show up in church every Sunday, but it's, it's a call daily. It's a call daily to serve, to follow our servant king. And what if we truly trusted and believed this teaching? What if we didn't have our feathers all ruffled by Jesus' teaching that we should be a servant of all? What if, what if there's true wisdom in this, in fact? And not just that we say we believe that, yes, this is wise, this is good, but what if it's something that we, we truly receive and we live? And when there's times of pride creeping up, when there's times of thinking of, of self and how bad things are going for self, that we say, look at my king, look at my servant, 
there's true wisdom when he says, I should think of myself least of all, servant of all. And let's look at this in the confines of marriage, right? Husband, wife, two people, man and woman, drastically different in so many ways, come together in marriage. And they're supposed to become one flesh. Impossible if it's not for the work of God because we're so different. And if they come to marriage to, to, to seek their own pleasure, to seek their own good, that marriage has started out on rocky ground already, even before they say, I do. And if we apply this to children and raising of children too, if we allow our lives and our children's lives to be centered on them, what are we teaching them? We're not setting them up well. Because when they go to work, their boss doesn't care that their life up until this point's revolved around them. Now the objective is you are working for the company. You're serving the needs of your boss and the company and your customers. But it's even more than just the practical living out in, in, in our vocation. But it's even when you seek to raise your kids, if, if their life is centered around them and your life has conformed around everything that they possibly want every second of the day, then what happens when you go to teach them about Jesus? And he doesn't say, you live your life how you want to. He says the exact opposite. So when you tell your kids, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Jesus, you've just shattered everything you've taught them with your life. And so even in our, our child raising, let's center it all on Jesus. How do we play baseball to the glory of Jesus? How do we study for school for the glory of Jesus? How do I do everything? How do I parent to the glory of Jesus? My kids aren't made to serve me. I'm not made to only serve my kids, we are made to serve our servant king, to follow him and to serve others. Pride is sneaky. And I think oftentimes it's easily recognized in the extrovert or the boastful. But I think pride even, it, 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 I think it's in all of us. Even those of us who would say we're maybe perhaps more introverted or uh, even I think we see this sometimes um, in some cases of depression. If we're so focused on self and what's going on with us, we lose sight of God. And we lose focus on our true aim in life and that is to serve Him, to follow Him, to lay our life down for Him. And so pride is not only for those who are the extroverts and only those who are boastful, but pride creeps in even on the introvert. Even the one who thinks they're the lowest, it can even creep in on you who think, I do nothing well. I struggle because I feel like everything I do touch, that I touch it just crumbles. Well, guess what? If it crumbles, it's not only because of you. 
Perhaps it might be some of what you've done. But don't let your focus be solely on yourself because I think when it is, you've lost sight of everything that you do, whether in the eyes of man it succeeds or in the eyes of man it fails. It's really that you're supposed to be glorifying your maker anyways. And so let that be how you serve. Let that be what motivates you thinking that you're the least of all, that you're the servant of all. But it's not just having some ritual or some chant, right? It's not three steps and then you've conquered this today and you don't have to struggle with it ten years from now. But it's a constantly, how do I do this? How do I beat down pride in my life that Christ might be made more in my life? We must gaze into the mystery of the gospel. And I think in some ways it is a mystery. It doesn't always make sense why Jesus would love us, why Jesus would sacrifice himself for us when we've been the ones who have rebelled and turned against him. But luckily for us, that's not the motivation. That's not why he laid his life down. It's not because we've loved him first. But he first loved us. He first gave himself for us that he might reconcile us, that he might save us from our sin, that he might save us from our pride and thinking well of ourselves. We didn't deserve it. And so even when it comes to, to, to seeking being the servant, we can know we've been first served by Christ, but we can also look to him in his life that it might teach us how to be servants. So even as, as we struggle with being the last of all, being the servant of all, we must look to Jesus, this servant, the servant king, the one who gave his life, not coming with might and power, but the one who came in humility, that we might see him. John Stott says it this way, Every time we look at the cross, Christ seems to be saying, I am here because of you. It is your sin I'm bearing, your curse I'm suffering, your debt I am paying, your death I am dying. You have been served in a far greater way than anyone else can ever serve you. Now let's look to that. Let's look to Jesus. Let's look to the good news that he didn't stay dead, but that he is the risen servant who served us in the greatest way this world has ever seen. Let us look to Christ, the servant king, who is the king of servants. Would you pray with me? Father, I ask that your word would, would change me, that your word would change all who are here today, that as we see you as this servant king, the one who has been betrayed, the one who has suffered, the one who has risen, 
we would be reminded of and that we would remember daily that the call to be a disciple of this servant king is a call to follow him, to be like him. And so would you help us to receive the least of these, that you would help us to think of ourselves as least of all and as servant of all, because we have been shown the greatest act of service and love this world could have ever imagined through Christ's death and his resurrection. It's in him that we trust and it's in him that we, we sing and we worship. Would you help our lives to be conformed to the image of Christ? And it's in his name I pray. Amen.